Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but Rediscovering New York is not about real estate. It's a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians, and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On other shows like tonight, we host episodes about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Not going to go into the kinds of shows that we do because we have a very full program tonight. Today is April 6th, and it's actually Tartan Day in the Scottish calendar. And this week is Tartan Week. Tartan Week is a celebration in many North American cities of the heritage of Scotland and the contributions that Scots have made in the United States. And I thought that it would be very appropriate this week to focus on Scottish people who came to New York and who left their imprint, some of whom you have never heard of before, but many of whom you can still see walking around the city. And one other very important thing for me and Tartan Week in New York is that my wonderful husband, Ralph, is Scottish American. We have a little treat tonight before we introduce our first guest. We're going to have a couple of minutes of remarks that are going to be played, it's recorded, by Camilla Hellman. Camilla is the president of the American Scottish Foundation, and she's going to talk about virtual programs this week for Tartan Week in New York. Take it away, Emily. Good evening, and thank you so much for inviting the American Scottish Foundation to be a part of your podcast this week and to speak to you a little bit about the Scots who built New York on this week that is, as you mentioned, all about the Scots. It's Tartan Week. And Tartan Week is, is an annual celebration of what the American Scots have done to bring, uh, to help develop the United States. And Tartan Day is on April the 6th. So the, uh, the podcast is actually happening on Tartan Day. And Tartan Day is a celebration that is held annually after it made its way through congressional approval and congressional Senate approval in 1998 and, and was also a presidential decree in 2006. And so now around the country, there are celebrations of Tartan Day that will be happening in the following days. Normally, there would be a parade in New York. Um, this year, it's going to be virtual. It's going to be a wonderful experience. And we encourage all to listen in on Saturday, April 10th at 2 p.m. It's going to be, uh, details can be found on nyctartanweek.org. And it will bring together people that have marched in previous years and uh, but this time virtually and with their message and with music. So it's going to be different. And the National Tartan Day New York Committee is made up of the St. Andrews Society of New York, New York um, Caledonian Club, the American Scottish Foundation uh, and Clan Campbell. So all of us um, hold our own events during the week and then come together to do the parade. And so there's lots of different things that are happening. And uh, we hope that you will 
take a look at the ASF website, americanscottishfoundation.org, and at nyctartanweek.org, where you'll find many other events, um, all of them happening, as we say, virtually, apart from one, which is the ASF is doing a small concert on Saturday morning from 12 to 12.30 to 2 at Bryan Park. So there will be some sound of the bagpipes in New York on Saturday. And now I'm so glad that you're going to have a chance to hear from John Kinnear, who will be speaking about the Scots who built New York. And, um, and then I believe you're being taken uh, over to Dunfermline to learn a little bit more about Carnegie. Thank you so much for letting us join you today. Well, thank you, Camilla Hellman of the American Scottish Foundation. On a personal note, I have to say I'm uh, disappointed that we're not going to have a live uh, parade this year. Even though the parade is only 12 blocks, it's one of the most fun parades in New York. It's always the first Saturday in April. And uh, uh, I have to say that the Pipers on the Tartan Day Parade are even better than the ones on the St. Patrick's Day Parade. I know my Irish fans are going to resent me saying that. But anyway... Um, our first guest is John Kinnear, as Camilla said. John is an architect. He practices primarily in and around New York and also works on projects in other parts of the U.S. and in Great Britain. John believes that successful design is a function of proportion, rhythm, and balance, and that these principles apply to all architecture. Projects John has worked on include the British Garden in Hanover Square, that's here in New York City, the restoration of All Souls Church here in New York, the restoration of 18th and 19th century homes, as well as new homes built with traditional materials. All projects incorporate energy conservation, balance sites, and green design. John is president of the American Friends of the Georgian Group, chairman of the Architectural Advisor Committee and Village District Consultants in Ridgefield, Connecticut. John serves on the boards of the Valkyll Partnership. That's Eleanor Roosevelt's home, by the way, in the Hudson Valley. And perhaps most notably for our program, he's on the board of the American Scottish Foundation. John Kinnear, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Well, thank you. Thank you for that nice introduction. I wanted to, of course, we're going to talk about Scots in New York, but uh, I want to ask you a little about your background. When did you decide that you wanted to be an architect? Pretty early, probably by the time I was 15 or 16, my father said, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? And uh, I kind of thought about it and always liked uh, working on things and building things, et cetera, et cetera. And my grandmother uh, was terrific when I was very young, took me all over New York. That's how I developed such a love for the city. And um, Pratt Institute, where I eventually went to school, had a uh, had a test to discern determine if you had an attitude aptitude for architecture. <laughs> I think I did that in my senior year, and uh, the rest was um, getting to school, becoming an architect. Well, that's great. Um, I actually, have friends who are architects. It's almost like saying I have friends who have lawyers. Uh, but actually, <laughs> some sometime offline, I want to talk to you more about uh, Georgian architecture, especially since I studied Georgian history in college. Um, and we have to talk about some of those great books I have in my library. Um, moving, speaking of Georgian architecture, though, um, Scots were famous for it. Um, but moving to, to Scots here in New York, um, it would be easy to think that Scots started settling here after the takeover of New Netherland and New Amsterdam by the English. 
But Scots actually settled New Amsterdam with the Dutch and, in fact, sailed here before New Amsterdam was even founded, didn't they? They did. It was one of the most interesting things of the research that we, we did. And the Scots, as we found out through our research and through other things, were incredibly great explorers. I mean, they you can find Scots anywhere around the world all through the time that people were exploring. And the Scots and the Dutch had a long-standing uh, relationship. Uh, there's even a, a Scottish church in Rotterdam that's been there since 1643 and still exists. They were sailors, they were soldiers, they were merchants, they were builders, and, and the, the Dutch really did rely on them right from the beginning in New Amsterdam. And it wasn't just the Dutch who, quote-unquote, purchased Manhattan from the Lenape in 1626. Uh, there was a Scot with Peter Minuit when the deal was finalized, wasn't there? There was. Most interesting, yeah. By the name of Scandlin, and he was there. There's even paintings that show him with Peter Minuit, uh, you know, uh, giving the $24 worth of, uh, worth of goods to the Indians. New Amsterdam became New York, John, in 1664 after um, uh, the English, because actually Scotland wasn't part of Great Britain at that point. So, so we can say it was an English takeover. Um, right. The area, I have my second guest sort of uh, uh, frowning at me at that, but uh, uh, did the area see a wave of Scottish immigrants like in the years following the takeover and, and, and the forming of New York from, from New Netherland? Not really. The Scots have come to New York over the over the centuries that the city has been here, but there never have been real waves of Scottish immigrants, uh, as there were with the, the Irish, the Italians, the Chinese. And, you know, sometimes people ask me, why is there no uh, New Scotland in, in New York or, or uh, like a, a Scottish Scottish town? And it's, I think, primarily because there never was that that immigration all at the same time. Uh, they've been in the United States since its formation. And uh, many Scots came to the United States. They were well-to-do people in Scotland, but wanted to, you know, expand their horizons and, and, and come to the, the new country. Who was the first really prominent Scottish family to uh, 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 set up shop in New York and to, and, and to build an estate and a family business? The Livingstons were the first family and the Livingstons came and uh, without too much time going by had intermarried with the Beekmans, which were a very prominent family in New York from the very beginning. And the Livingstons went on to establish major estates up and down the Hudson Valley. And most of them, many of the, the manor houses still exist today. And some of them are open to the public and you can visit them. So the Livingstons, which came from Lynn Lithgow in Scotland, uh, were a major force in the in the settlement of the Hudson Valley. And there was a notorious Scot in early New York that many of our listeners will recognize his name, even though they tend not to think of him as having any kind of New York connection. Oh, Captain Kidd, as he was became notorious. He was actually a New Yorker, pretty prominent New Yorker. He had married the widow of a very wealthy person, and their home was in Hanover Square, which is now the site of the uh, British Memorial Garden that you, you mentioned earlier. And, uh, and that was uh, uh, built and dedicated after 9-11. It was. It, yes, it was, it was dedicated, I think it was in 2006, by Queen Elizabeth herself. And the new name of the park is, of course, the Queen Elizabeth II 
September 9th Memorial, September 1st Memorial Park, September. And um, yeah, Captain Kidd was actually a privateer and financed by a very prominent Englishman, but his, his raids were not successful. And, uh, and he became the scapegoat and was actually hanged in London. Hmm. And not just hanged, but uh, gibbeted as well. It's pretty gruesome <laughs> that he did that to him. Um, yeah. But let's fast forward about 100 years to the American Revolution, the largest battle of the war, the Battle of Long Island, which actually took place in Brooklyn. There was a Scottish-born general whose command of a regiment may have enabled most of the Continental Army to retreat safely to Manhattan and live to fight another day. Who was he? That was uh, Sterling, General Sterling, a Scot who came to fight for the, uh, for the Americans. And he put up a, a successful uh, battle that, that held back the British and gave Washington time to get across the Hudson, uh, the East River. And mm-hmm. fortunately, it was an incredibly foggy morning. And uh, if it wasn't for the fog, they would have been, uh, they probably would not have made it to Manhattan. Well, speaking of the war in independence, John, um, there was a very famous first generation American, a Scot by descent who gained fame in the revolution working as an adjunct to George Washington and, of course, became one of the country's founding fathers. What was Alexander Hamilton's Scottish background and when did he come to New York? Alexander Hamilton's father was the third son of the Hamilton family, which was one of the wealthiest families in Scotland. But as third son, he didn't inherit. So he went to the Caribbean to try and make his fortune in the sugar trade. that didn't really pan out. And he, um, he lived with, uh, with a common law wife for many, many, many years. She, she had been married before. Her husband would never grant a, a uh, divorce. And Alexander Hamilton was born in that, under that shadow. Um, and of course, people disparage that relationship and, and his, his, uh, his being born under that shadow. But it turned out that he was an incredibly, incredibly intelligent I would say probably a genius and worked from the time he was about 14 for trading house. And the trading house was owned by the Beekmans, the same family that we spoke of earlier. Mm. The Beekmans recognized his incredible talents and intelligence and sent him to New York to go to King's college, which is of course now become Columbia. And that was just before the revolution. Well, we're not, we've talked about Hamilton on other shows, and we have so many other people to cover that I want to leave Hamilton for now. Um, sure. Who was John McComb, and what were his contributions to New York, uh, especially right after independence? Well, John McComb uh, uh, came from, he and his father were both builder architects, and their family had come to America, oh, in the uh, 1730s or so. Again, uh, not, not poor immigrants by any means. And their uncle actually had gotten a, uh, a royal charter to all the fur trade west of the Allegheny Mountains and became an incredibly wealthy person, somewhat like the Astors, and had uh, probably was one of the most wealthy people in the city. And, uh, you know, nothing when the war, after about 10 years of British occupation in New York, nothing was built, nothing was repaired. And so the city was in terrible condition. The Macombs, got involved in helping rebuild the city after the revolution. And John Jr. did an incredible amount of construction. And to this day, so many of his buildings still exist and have become landmarks that he as an individual architect has eight landmarks 
which I believe is more than anybody else in New York City or in the history of the city. Wow. And he was from and they were Scottish. Um, yes. We're going to take a break in a moment, but uh, uh, let's talk briefly uh, about someone uh, whose name is one that most New Yorkers would recognize, even though most don't know who the man behind the name is. And that's Archibald Gracie. Uh, Archibald Grace, again, a Scottish merchant, uh, owner of many ships, trader, and he came to New York and decided that's where he wanted to build his his home. And he built the Gracie Mansion on the grounds where there was a much earlier house that had burned down. And Gracie Mansion, again, thanks to Robert Moses, became the residence for the mayor of New York. And it's pretty much the way it was in his time, although there was a wonderful ballroom addition built in the Wagner administration. And they have installed some indoor plumbing in the interim. In the years, but <laughs> a little the, bit. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's actually a beautiful house. Uh, and interestingly, um, the uh, there's a, uh, uh, the fireplace uh, that Alice Edger Hamilton died in front of that was in the village in a village house that was demolished. That was removed and it was uh, uh, reinstalled in Gracie Mansion. So the fireplace that Hamilton died of his wounds from the duel is actually in Gracie Mansion. Um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with John Kinnear. John is an architect, and he's also a board member of the American Scottish Foundation. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Did you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Inning. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 
This is episode 109 of Rediscovering New York, which is entitled The Scots in New York. My first guest is John Kinnear. John is an architect, and he's also a board member of the American Scottish Foundation. John, in a minute, we're going to be talking about some of the great Scottish architects whose works can still be seen. Um, but I want to ask you about, about something in your work. What project have you worked on that uh, you would consider the greatest or the one that you're most proud of? Well, it's an interesting question. And one of my clients who I just finished a wonderful house for in Tuxedo Park said, what's your favorite project, John? And I said, the next one. <laughs> and to that end, if people would like to contact you or to find out about your services, how can they, how can they get in touch with you? Well, I do have a website, uh, johnkinneararchitects.com. And, uh, now, and uh, I have an office in New York. The number is 212-682-8390. And um, that's a, probably a good way to start. Yes. Let's talk about one of your favorite subjects and mine too, architecture. Um, I actually studied a little architectural history at Vassar with Richard Palmer. I don't know if that name rings a bell. He's uh, no longer with us. But um, uh, let's look at Charles McKinn. Um, he was a founding partner of McKinn, Mead and White. Um, it was the most pro prolific and influential architectural firm in America at that time. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about McKinn and the work that he and his firm did in New York? Yeah, actually, he was the first uh, Scott that we did uh, a talk on because it came to my mind immediately when we started thinking of Scottish architects in the city. He was a, a Scott descendant, of course, born in America. His parents were uh, very big in the abolitionist movement. He didn't want to have anything really to do with that. He went to Harvard, and from Harvard, he went to study at the Beaux-Arts Ecole in Paris, and that's where he decided that he wanted to be an architect. He came back to the United States and met up with Stanford White, and the two of them, plus Mead, who was basically the business partner of the firm, started the firm. And, and pretty much the rest was history from about the 1880s till about the 1920s. They, they were the most prolific creative firm in the, in the city and in the United States. Um, his, his gem, his prize is the university, university Club on Fifth Avenue. And it's a wonderful building, you know, kind of modeled on an Italian rena Renaissance structure. And the interiors are fabulous. I mean, the, the library there is based on the Vatican Library and, and the detailing of everything in that building is superb. And it's, it's amazing when you walk by the building, you think it's a three-story building. It's actually 10 stories. It was very cleverly designed uh, to still appear like a, an Italian palazzo. And of course, um, McKim, Mead & White were the architects of the famous and now defunct Pennsylvania Station, the original Penn Station. Uh, which you can still see in amazing photographs, but sadly we can't see it uh, uh, face to face. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time um, talking about other Scottish architects whose work really impacted New York. But unlike uh, uh, McKim, Mead and White, there are names that most people probably wouldn't recognize, but might recognize the buildings. Um, who was Walter Cook and what did he do? Well, Walter Cook uh, was is is still primarily known for being the architect for the Carnegie Mansion, uh, and and which is now of course Cooper Hewitt, and uh, Carnegie, as much as he could, would generally use architects that were of Scottish descent. Uh, 
Cook also, his firm also did quite a number of the libraries that Carnegie mm -hmm. built in New York City. And, you know, that's a whole topic in itself. He did about 2,500. He contributed the construction money for about 2,500 libraries around the English speaking world. New York alone has 67 of them. Most are still functioning as libraries, all done by prominent architects at the time. And I think McKim, Mead and White also uh, designed about a dozen of them. Correct. Um, we have John Duncan. Uh, he was the architect of Grant's tomb. Uh, do you want to talk about him a little bit? Well, again, he's a Scott, not, not thought of too much, but he did Grant's tomb, which is a, an incredible building, especially the interiors. If you haven't been there, you've got to get up there. It's and the best kept secret in New York. The first time I went in, I walked inside and I thought, how could I not have been here before? It's, it's, it's incredible. There's nothing like it anywhere that I've seen. It's, it's so true. And then, of course, he did the uh, Grand Army Plaza, you know, the arch in Brooklyn, which is, you know, one of the most predominant spaces in the whole borough. And he did a few, he did a lot of other buildings. He did a, a you know, a townhouse, which is still extant and I think sold for about $50 million recently. And then we have William Tuttle. Ah, uh, yes. William Tuttle, again, Carnegie selected him to build Carnegie Hall. He had never done any kind of a, a music hall before, but he was a musician. He had the right ear. And he went to Europe and he studied all the great, great opera houses and halls in Europe and came back and designed the Carnegie Hall, which to this day, uh, you know, as we all know, it's just about acoustically perfect. Uh, there's many stories that can be attached to this, but that'd be like a whole radio show in itself. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the man who funded that in the next segment of the show. Um, and John, someone who most Americans don't realize was of Scottish ancestry was Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright. He actually was descended from the Borders region, uh, right uh, uh, above the Tweed. Is that right, yeah. there, right above the Tweed? Uh, <laughs> he was uh, most famous in New York for the Guggenheim Museum in the interior of the Little House in the Metropolitan Museum. But he also uh, construct, he also designed some other really significant buildings in the city. Um, yeah, and he also built, he also designed some wonderful residential houses. You know, there was the, uh, there's one that's still there in Staten Island. And he designed a house for Marilyn Monroe, which was never built. But, um, and of course, he actually passed away in New York because he was living at the Plaza Hotel at the time. And he did a showroom uh, for cars. It was mostly Porsches uh, and other brands on Park Avenue. And it, it survived until probably about 10 years ago. And it's unfortunately no longer there. Oh, it wasn't landmarked? I would have thought that a, bu a building like that would have been landmarked. Uh, I thought it was. It was, un it was unfortunately only an interior and, and getting land uh, interiors landmarked is kind of a difficult task, I guess. It really is too bad because it was, it incorporated a lot of Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, ramps and, you know, it was just a very, obviously a right type of a space. Who was John Russell Pope? John Russell Pope, again, was a, a, a Scott descent, uh, probably most famous for converting the Frick Mansion into the Frick Museum that we all absolutely love to this day. Um, he also did buildings all over the all over the United States and and uh, Washington D.C. He did the Masonic Hall in Washington D.C., which is again a very fabulous building. 
Well, most people who've walked the, the streets of New York um, will know the work of this, this next architect, but I will bet you that they don't know his name, William Lamb. What did he build? What did he do? <laughs> William Lamb, whose father was a carpenter back in Edinburgh, came to the United States and became an architect. And he was responsible for 40 Wall Street, which for a short period of time was the tallest building in the world. Um, a few months later, the Chrysler building surpassed him because the Chrysler building built the spear or the mast within the building, waited until Lamb's building was topped off and completed and raised the mast, which made it a few hundred foot actually taller than 40 Wall Street. And not too long after that, Lamb's other project, which was the Empire State Building, surpassed everybody and, um, and and remained the tallest building in the world, I think, until uh, probably... Until the Trade Center was built, the original Trade Center, I think. Yeah, yeah, that was that was very tall. But even before even before that, the uh, uh, one of the buildings in Chicago surpassed it. Hmm. We only have about a minute left. Uh, there are a lot of more people we can talk about, but uh, I'd like to talk briefly about Philip Johnson. He was responsible for some of the most iconic buildings and spaces in the city. Do you want to talk about him for a minute? Yeah, well, Philip Johnson is, of course, very well known for his uh, working with Mies van der Rohe on the Seagram building and the Four Seasons restaurant. Now, the Four Seasons restaurant, fortunately, is one of the interiors in New York City that has been landmarked and cannot be changed in any way. Uh, there's, of course, different people operating the restaurant now, but the space is exactly the same. He also did the Sculpture Garden at the Museum of Modern Art. He did the New York State Theater in Lincoln Center, uh, the Lipstick Building, the AT&T Building, you know, many, many projects in New York. Well, for a country now that has about 5 million people, who would have thought that such a relatively small country would have such a huge impact on the cityscape in perhaps what is the greatest city in the world? I know I'm prejudiced, everybody, but, but so be it. <laughs> John, thank you so much. Our first guest on the special show, The Scots in New York, celebrating Tartan Week in New York, has been John Kinnear. John is a renowned architect, and he's also on the board of the American Scottish Foundation. Thank you, John. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we have another special guest who's going to be speaking about uh, someone who many people may not have known was a New Yorker, but who became a New Yorker. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. 
While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. a little delay there we're back and you're back to rediscovering new york in our special episode number 109 the scots in new york support for the program comes from our sponsors the mark myman team mortgage strategist at freedom mortgage for assistance in any kind of residential mortgage mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735 and support also comes from the law offices of thomas siaka focusing on wills estate planning probate and inheritance litigation Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. You can like the show on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are all Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest tonight on the Scots in New York is a Scot in New York. He's Graham Dobbin. Originally from Dunfermline in Scotland, the birthplace of Andrew Carnegie, Graham has been very aware from an early age of Carnegie's impact on New York. I'm trying to say that like a Scot instead of like a New Yorker. <laughs> Carnegie, there it comes, was and is still a huge influence in both Dunfermline and New York, even more than a century after his death. Graham has made New York City his home for nearly four years. He helps to develop leadership teams in some of the world's largest organizations, such as Google, BMW, and the World Bank. And we're grateful to have Graham on the show less than 48 hours before he departs for an extended business trip to Australia. And if all this isn't enough, aside from Graham being a friend, he has his very own radio show and podcast right here on talkradio.nyz. It's called The Mind Behind Leadership, which you can hear on Thursdays at 8 p.m. 
right here on the station and also on podcast. Graham, it's my pleasure to have you on my show. Thanks for coming tonight. This is so strange, Jeff, being on the other side of the microphone. <laughs> Very occasionally I get interviewed by other people and it's actually nice. I don't have to come up with the questions. You just have to give the answers. <laughs> um, Graham, I'd like to ask where my guests are from. We know where you're from, and if, but if they're not from New York, what brought them here? What was it about New York that had you decide to move your life from the United Kingdom and live here of all places? I, you know, it's, it's, I get asked that question a lot, Jeff, and it's, it's, it's a difficult one to answer because there just seems to be some kind of natural draw to New York for, 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 for many Scots. Um, been here many times, came on a, an extended vacation about four, four and a half years ago, and rather than doing the tourist thing, just got kind of got stuck into the neighbourhoods, the neighbourhoods that you talk about, um, and spent uh, two weeks in Brooklyn, fell in love with the place and thought, if we don't do it now, we never will, and just made it happen. I mean, it's as simple as that. If anybody was, if anybody was asking me for advice on whether they should do it the way that I've done it, I would, I would, not, I would tell them not to. <laughs> but it, was, it, was, it was one of those things that just felt it needed to be done. Oh. Don't do as I do, maybe do what I say. That's <laughs> Something like that, yes. <laughs> Um, well, Carnegie and his family probably would have had a different experience when they moved to the States. Um, I'd like to spend just a little bit of time talking about his life before we talk about what he did in and for New York. How old was Carnegie when he left Scotland to come to the U.S.? Um, he, was, he was 12, 12, 13 years old. The interesting thing, um, something I just discovered today, um, I've, I've been, began to use um, one of these websites that allows me to have a look at my ancestors, etc., and I found the manifest for him uh, arriving here. And it actually says he's 15 on it, but he clearly wasn't. So I'm not quite sure why it was recorded like that at Ellis Island, but he, would, he was 12, 13 years old. Well, to get my first job as a cashier at Alexander's, I had to lie about my age. <laughs> uh, somebody even forged my birth certificate at the time to get that job. I'm not sure that's something we should be admitting on air, Jeff. No, it was 45 years ago. I'm sure the statute of limitations is passed on that. Um, what was Carnegie's life like when he and his family first came to the States? Where did they settle and what did they do? They settled in Pennsylvania and um, his father was, was a, a linen weaver in, in Dunfermline. That was the big industry then. And he came across the first, I think the first job that, that, that uh, Andrew, and I need to practice this, Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie said uh, he, was a, he was like a bobbin boy in a cotton mill. But then he, he, he got a job... Um, as a telegraph um, wire runner, effectively, and that was where everything changed for him. But, but very menial jobs, you know, it was a very basic existence. Um, if you look at the 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 um, his, his original home, it was a kind of a one up one down um, stone cottage that the whole family lived in, and the parents worked in in Dunfermline. So they they didn't have a lot of money. It was uh, relatives that helped to, to sponsor them over here. But it was it was uh, it was probably quite a tough upbringing and pro- quite a tough life at that point. Hmm. When did Carnegie? I can call him Carnegie. You can call him Carnegie. We'll, 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 we'll flip. Here. We're going to test John in a moment again. <laughs> <laughs> um, although I saw this really interesting sixty-second video on YouTube. If anyone wants to Google it about how do you pronounce it, Carnegie or Carnegie, it was really entertaining. When did Carnegie uh, make that uh, transformation from being an employee? to beginning to owning and running his own businesses? Do you know what? He was, he was in his early 20s when, when he, he started to make some serious, serious money. I think he was given some shares and, and, he, and he saw dividends coming from the shares. He, he'd worked extremely hard 
he was he was seen to be a, a hard worker, which is um, something that I think Scots have kind of um, got a reputation for. And he was just he was recognised as being slightly um, more intelligent and in, 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 uh, forceful than, than others. And he started to make money in his early 20s. By the, by the time he was 28, he was making some serious, serious money and running big businesses. Well, he had successful investments in railroads, mm-hmm. in sleeping cars with the Pullman Company, in bridges, and even oil derricks. And of course, he ended up building the biggest steel company in the United States, in this, in this United States, which is one of the things he is known best for. Graham, you study leadership and the qualities of leaders. What would you say made Andrew Carnegie the man he was that enabled him for a while to become the richest person in the United States? And I'm guessing maybe the richest self-made person in the world at that time. It's really interesting. He just seemed to have this knack of understanding people more than anything else. Obviously, he understood business, but he understood people. One of the, um, we know what stories are like from them. There's a lot of anecdotal stuff. But one of the biggest deals that, that and early deals that he did was between Woodruff and George Pullman, when they merged the two companies to to have the sleeping cars. It allowed them to kind of have train journeys over five hundred miles, um, and Pullman was n- notoriously difficult to work with. And the story goes that Andrew Carnegie was the was was the person who was was negotiating this deal for both parties, and Pullman wasn't interested. And as Carnegie was about to leave, Pullman said to him, what would we call this company if we were to merge them? And he said, of course we'd call them the Pullman Coach Company. And he just knew that using names would would, um, probably trigger the ego of George Pullman. Everything changed at that point. When when Pullman realised it was his name that was going to be above the door, and Carnegie um, persuaded all other parties that it was worth giving up for the joint venture. And he got shares for doing that. Then, of course, he went on to found uh, Carnegie Steel, which would become the biggest steel company in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's move on a little bit from his business. Um, Carnegie, most people don't don't know it, but he was also a scholar. He was a writer and he was also an activist. Do you want to talk about that side of who he was? Probably just a little bit. It was quite controversial, probably, for, for being... Um, a Scot and a Brit. He, he wrote he, he wrote pieces about um, how the republicanism um, being a republic rather in in the US was much was a much better model than uh, having a monarchy in the UK. So he he saw um, he saw the American model and, and wanted to encourage that in the UK as much as he could. And he was you know one of the things that didn't make him too popular. <laughs> some in, in some quarters in the UK as well, but he was he was very much um, an activist in a number of different ways. Where, as we know, John's already mentioned about libraries. He was absolutely passionate that people had access to land, regardless of background. And this was something that that um, that was that, that went right through his life. Mm. Well, we're going to take a short break, Graham. And when we come back, I want to talk about uh, Carnegie's shift from him being a businessman and a wealthy industrialist to his work as a philanthropist. Uh, I do want to say one little note, though. Um, I have never uh, had any alcohol on any program that I've ever had, but 
celebrating Tartan Week, I poured myself a dram of my favorite Scottish whiskey, which is Talisker. Graham has his own favorite whiskey. Graham, what, what's yours? I'm just on McAllen this evening. Okay. But I had to, I had to do Talisker. Uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Graham Dobbin. And I hope that in honor of Tartan Week, that if you do drink, that you maybe have a little wee bit on your own to enjoy the, the rest of the show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back and you're back to rediscovering new york and our special episode the scots in new york celebrating tartan week in new york and in north america it's celebrated in canada and the united states my second guest tonight is graham dobbin graham is a consultant and a leadership coach graham i want to ask you about your business do you want to talk a little bit about the kind of work you do and and what um makes your consulting and your leadership training special um, it's everything to do with my accent. That's probably the best <laughs> way to say it. <laughs> um, and you're tasting whiskey. <laughs> tasting whiskey. Um, I, I suppose, um, Jeff, one of the things I get, as I mentioned before, I get involved with um, helping leadership teams in some, some very, very large organizations uh, across North America and in UK and now in Australia as well. And I think one of the, one of the things that, that, that makes a difference is we come from a practical background. We've done it in the past. So this isn't just, you know, corporate training or leading. Um, we look at this very much in context of how companies work and, and try to get in, into the function of it and the people rather than just going through a process. So we, 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 we dig in real depth um, 
we're, we're working with a number of companies like Indeed, like BMW, we've worked with Google and the World Bank in the past. And, um, and it is very much, it's a practical application of it. And there's kind of no one size fits all. If people want to find out more about your work and to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Best way to catch me is LinkedIn. There are only about three Graham Dobbins in the world. Hmm. So that's probably the easiest way to find me is LinkedIn. Uh, great. Back to Carnegie. Mm-hmm. When he was at the peak of his success and his wealth, he made a shift. He made a, propa- a, a profound shift, a huge shift, as Bernie Sanders would say. He sold his steel business to J.P. Morgan for an inordinate amount of money, more than anyone had probably ever seen at that time, had gone through a bank, and he became a philanthropist. What was it about his personal journey that had him make a total shift in what he did every day and what, in, in what the, the reason for him going into an office, going to meet people was all about? I, you know, it's, it's one of those questions that, our upbringings make determine a lot about how we move forward, even later in life. And I'm absolutely convinced that Andrew Carnegie's um, um, upbringing in Dunfermline, because um, he, he was born within within um, a few hundred yards of where Robert the Bruce was buried. He was born in the ancient capital of Scotland. And, you know, it's a really, really proud place, but it was a place that was almost segregated when he was there between rich and poor. And I think that had a profound effect on him. So when he got to a point, and there was also a couple of things that happened during um, uh, during his, um, his, the, the, his his business career that I think also had a had a big effect on so the Smithtown riots, um, where there was a, an, an industrial action where some people died. It was one of the biggest in the U.S. still in history. He wasn't on the ground. Frisk was. Um, but he took a lot of the flack for that. And so I think when he came out, he realised that um, one of his mantras was, and I'm going to paraphrase this from Andrew, Andrew Carnegie, was, you know, um, to, to die riches, to die in disgrace. So his everything was, he had amassed more money than he could possibly ever spend himself. What good could he do with it? So that, that seems to have been, you know, partly the trigger. Well, let's move to the fruits of his philanthropy. We don't have time to go into all of these. As John talked about, he built Carnegie Hall in New York. He built the Peace Palace in The Hague, which is now the seat of the International Court of Justice. He founded the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the Carnegie Institute for Science, Carnegie Trust for Universities of Scotland, the Carnegie Hero Fund, Carnegie Mellon University, which is based in Pittsburgh, and the Carnegie Museum of Pittsburgh, among many others. Um, when did he move to New York? Because he did move to New York. He became a New Yorker. He wasn't, but then he, he did, did become one. I'm trying, still trying to work out how long you need to be here to become a New Yorker, Jeff. Um, he, he moved to New York in the late 1860s mm-hmm. uh, and, and decided this was where he was going to set up the corporation. This is where he was going to run, run his business from. And, and then obviously he, you know, a few years later, he built the, 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 the Carnegie Hall. We can say it properly, the Carnegie Hall, <laughs> which, which was regarded as, you know, I mean, John will know much more as being an architect, but if, if, it's one of the kind of the hidden secrets of New York. If nobody's been on the tour of Carnegie Hall, go on it for the, for the sake of 20 bucks or whatever it is and an hour of your time. It's the most fascinating place. I always think of Carnegie Hall and his endowment of that, his, his building of it, in, interesting because... Um, 
my understanding is he was known more as other things than a patron of the arts. He was a writer. He was a scholar. He was an activist. Yeah. What was going on in his world that had him say, I have to build this monument to the most incredible music or to, or to hear the most incredible music that the world could possibly could possibly hear? My understanding was what was going on in his world was his wife. And he built, he built Carnegie Hall because she was much more into the arts. Um, and that was, one, that was one of the driving forces for him to do it. And again, when he built it, and I'm, I'm sure John's probably got a bit more knowledge on this one, my understanding is that was one of the more northerly parts of Manhattan at the time when, when, when Carnegie Hall was built. Speaking of northerly parts of Manhattan, um, before we get to the things that he built uh, and gave to New Yorkers by intention, one thing I always wondered, Graham, is that he built his mansion on the northern end of where wealthy people along Fifth Avenue built their mansions and lived. I mean, the Fricks built their mansion in the 70s. The Rockefellers were further downtown. Um, do we know why he moved so relatively far north on the avenue? Um, I don't know anything. I, I, what I would say is he was, he was always ahead of, ahead of his time. He built it. He's got Central Park there. And he knew that Manhattan was going to be, was going to be expanding. It was in extreme secrecy that they bought the land to build it. So he didn't want anybody to know. But my guess is, and I mean, the whole surrounding area is now called Carnegie Hill. Um, my guess is he knew just where Manhattan was going and how it was going to expand. Hmm. And one, one of the other things I would say, just, just well, so his house in Dunfermline was right outside an estate called Pittencreef Park. And it was an estate that was locked off until he bought it and opened it up to, to the public. So he actually endowed that to, to Dunfermline. It takes up about a third of the footprint of the, of, of the town. And my guess is that, that kind of that sitting outside Central Park is, is a very, very similar kind of situation that he's got there. Slightly mm. different house. And he did uh, go back to Dunfermline a number of times and mm -hmm. uh, was very uh, philanthropic with the, pl the place that he came from, also building libraries and other things. Um, aside from Carnegie Hall, Graham, um, what were some of the other projects that Carnegie got involved in the city? Um, Car Carnegie's influence is, is, is over the place. I mean, I would, I would say probably the, the biggest has been the libraries. Um, that, that's, that's been the largest part. Um, I have read that he was uh, influential in, in certain parts of Central Park as well, um, and some of, the, some of the designers as it was developed. And it's really interesting that he's probably better known here, Jeff, than he is in Scotland. And that's, that's actually quite, that's, that's an interesting. So we were brought up with knowing Carnegie in the local area, but when you go outside of the Dunfermline area, outside of the Fife area, most people actually don't know that Carnegie Hall in New York was built by a Scotsman. Mm. which is quite sad. <laughs> well, you know, there were lots of other famous New Yorkers who, who gave back to the people of the city so much. Um, you call Carnegie one of New York's most influential residents. Why? Um, I think that the, the, there's, and this is a personal thing, he's influential for me because in, 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 for full openness, I live in the same street as he did in New York, and my mum used to live in the same street as he did in Dunfermline. So there seems to be something going on there, so he's certainly influential to me. But you can see his influence everywhere, whether it comes down to the university, 
um, and even how, how people from New York recognize that. If you look at the Cooper Hewitt now, so he, his, his mansion isn't just privately owned, it's been turned into something else. Carnegie Hall is still regarded as, as, as um, one of the most unique theaters uh, um, in the world, especially for acoustics. He gave back a lot. Do you have a favorite building that Carnegie built that's in New York? Um, I, I'm, yes. And, it, and it's, it's really mainstream. It, it's Carnegie Hall. Mm. And genuinely, the first time I, I went in there and stood in it, I was, because I've been in the Carnegie Hall in Dunfermline, and I promise you it is not anything like this one. <laughs> well, Graham, based on what you've told me about Dunfermline, I'm looking forward to visiting. I actually, we were supposed to go last mm. June, but uh, sadly, like everyone else, uh, we, we, we canceled the trip. Graham, like so many times that you and I conduct interviews on our show, we're out of time. Time just goes by really fast. Um, my second guest on this show, uh, which I'm called The Scots in New York, has been Graham Dobbin. Graham is a leadership coach, and he's also a specialist on things Scottish and also Andrew Carnegie. Graham, thanks for making the time to, to be with us, especially so soon before your trip down under in, uh, in less thanks than 48 hours. Well, if you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles are jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. And don't forget this week to take advantage of all the virtual events for Tartan Week here in New York and around other parts of the U.S. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer this evening is the fabulous Emily Shulman. Our production assistant is Leah Coppola, and our special consultant for the program is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, who will be back on the air shortly. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. 
Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Howdy, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7 Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 